Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. LA Opera's music director, James Conlon, helps to set the stage for the upcoming audio stream of Wagner's epic four-part Der Ring des Nibelungen, commemorating the 10-year anniversary of the company's extraordinary first complete presentation of The Ring in 2010. The Ring Cycle will be featured in a marathon back-to-back audio stream of all four operas in one day, beginning at 7 a.m. on July 25th. This is James Conlon. In anticipation of four podcasts on the subject of The Ring of the Nibelungen of Richard Wagner and the presentation of the broadcasts of LA Opera's production from 2010, I wanted to reflect today on much of the philosophy of the ring rather than the music. The next podcasts will in fact be the four live pre-performance talks that preceded those performances. It is almost impossible to say anything about Richard Wagner that has not already been said or put to paper. The wealth of material about him exceeds that of all other artists, with the possible exception of William Shakespeare. He wrote more about his own art, philosophy, and himself than any other composer. Nevertheless, I will attempt to articulate some ideas about the significance of this ring at L.A. Opera. The 2010 production of Wagner's full The Ring of the Nibelungen represented a major milestone in the still relatively short existence of L.A. Opera, as Los Angeles had never seen an indigenous production. Giving birth to this mammoth four-part cycle is a major undertaking that challenges and defines an opera company. We set out to forge a heroic sword, as Siegfried does, and carry it through a rite of passage and into a new era of maturity. Producing the ring expanded the capacity of the entire opera company. The demands on the orchestra and music staff and on the stage personnel and company infrastructure, as well as the complex planning required for over two seasons, all contributed to this expansion. The stretching of the listening capacities of our audience must be included in this list as well. To veteran Wagner lovers, the ring needs no introduction or advertisement. There are many who travel from city to city, country to country, to see and discuss the latest production and compare notes. Their devotion demonstrates its enduring power to enchant. The ring occupies a central point in the history of Western art. It comprises music, drama, theater, and poetry. It marries them all on a scale unprecedented, unparalleled, and unsurpassed. The power of this music, 
combined with the inexhaustible richness of myth, remains a necessity in our time. Myths are open to limitless interpretations, and every theatrical production is open to a vast number of possible realizations. Whatever the approach, the timelessness of the ring's message is central to its strength and integral to its essence. The ring shares that power with myths and religious texts from around the world. Updating to contemporary costuming or situating the ring and its characters in familiar locales has been the dominating practice of the past several decades. There is no doubt that great creative work has resulted from exploring the theatricality of these options. That said, production values that were revolutionary and avant-garde a generation ago have now become, in many cases, clichés. The reductionism that underlies many productions can weaken the full force of its mythical power. Rather than strengthen, it can dilute. Rather than provoking the imagination and its connection to our unconscious, it can constrain. Through proscriptive specificity, our innate capacity to experience the work on multiple levels may be in danger of being reduced. On this occasion, the rebroadcasting of the 2010 Ring from L.A. Opera, these production issues are not relevant. The unlimited emotional force of the music can be experienced in a special way. The ear is the direct medium to the heart and its emotions. Whether interpreted as Freudian or Jungian, Marxist or Keynesian, as social criticism, political science, or spiritual tract, the whole is greater than the interpretations, its fullness more powerful than its reduction. It is the conductor's task to realize both the primordial power of the music and its drama. The two are intertwined and inseparable. Neither director nor conductor should lose sight of the fact that the primary dramatist is the composer, and the navigational chart to that drama is the music itself. Whereas the music can be said to have a concert life of its own outside the theater, the text of the ring, recited without music, has less vitality. Any rendition of the dramatic or musical elements that does not take this into account risks foundering at its launch. The goal is to render this work in a way that it opens up that infinite space as only it can. Quote, the incomparable truth about myth is that it is true for all time, and its content, however closely compressed, is inexhaustible through the ages. The only task of the poet was to expound it. Richard Wagner, Opera and Drama
Mythology is an art form that points beyond history to what is timeless in human existence, helping us get beyond the chaotic flux of random events and glimpse the core of reality. Karen Armstrong, A Short History of Myth. What Richard Wagner writes about the poet is true for the composer. What Karen Armstrong writes about the myth is true for music. Wagner, among so many other things, sought to create works that would unite the power of myth with the accomplishments of Shakespeare and Beethoven, idea, text, and music. The cycle consists of a prelude and three consecutive days. To make a musical analogy, the ring can be viewed as a four-part symphony, each movement self-contained and complete within itself. Das Rheingold, the prelude, is the expository movement. Die Walküre is the slower, expressive, lyrical movement. Siegfried has been likened to a scherzo, the first act witty, sharply bristling with demonic and Beethoven-like energy. Die Götterdämmerung is the sprawling, free-form, apocalyptic finale. In Die Walküre, the human dimension moves into the foreground and displaces the godly into the background. Wagner's gods, like their Greek counterparts, behave more like humans rather than disembodied spiritual beings. First seen on the mountaintop in Das Rheingold, Wotan and Fricka now descend to earth, where they operate according to human domestic categories, as wife, husband, and father. Sieglinde and Siegmund, the twin children of Wotan and a mortal woman, are fully human protagonists. Wotan's humanity, for better or worse, becomes more apparent in this second movement. We see him ensnared by the consequences of his self-contradiction. He has subverted his own law, and therefore his own power to rule. As he tries to find a way out of the trap that he has created for himself, we see anger, sadness, and frustration, and most importantly, enormous love for his favorite daughter, Brunhilde. His punishment will be to both lose her and his other most precious possession, power. This is one of the most tragic and tragically beautiful ironies in the ring that Wotan, who thinks he must punish Brunhilde in order to preserve the integrity of his divine law, punishes himself above all. It would be hard to imagine a musical rendering of paternal love greater than Wotan's farewell to his most beloved daughter. In its exquisite monumentality, the end of Act Three is a counterweight to the erotic love that triumphs at the end of Act One.
From the beginning, Sigmund and Sieglinde win our empathy. We see them meet, fall in love, and discover their mutual parentage. This is not a sweet infatuation, but the mutual recognition of an apparently pre-existing bond. They experience a liberating and exultant revelation of wholeness, the reunion of souls. They are the two complementary beings separated in a distant past, according to the ancient Greek notion of the hermaphroditic division described in Plato's Symposium. Their existence has been informed by their yearning for the missing half. By the time they recognize that they are indeed twins, their erotic union is already at hand. This knowledge does not deter them from consummating their love, nor us from understanding and even sympathizing. Wagner has accomplished the seemingly impossible. He has presented incestuous love on the stage and has not only gotten away with it, he has thoroughly engaged our empathy for the couple through the sheer emotional power of his music. He recognized what Freud was to identify decades later, the titanic power of breaking sexual taboos. And Wagner was proud to do so. Quote, Thus, sexual love is the revolutionary who breaks down the narrow confines of the family to widen itself into the broader reach of human society. Unquote. He observed that by breaking out of society's constraints, we discover the full power of our creativity. The stronger the constraint, the mightier the force. Here, by portraying the breaking of the one virtually universal taboo, he raises the ante on the intoxicating power of forbidden love. Only in the second act of Tristan and Isolde, a decade later, will the erotic perfection of the first act of Die Walküre be equaled. It is striking to note that in Die Walküre, with the exception of Fricke and Hunding, every character is a child of Wotan. He has fathered each of the Walkures with Erde, and Siegmund and Sieglinde with an unnamed mortal woman. Fricke, goddess of marriage, home, and hearth, with a mixture of godlike righteous indignation and justified jealousy, condemns the young couple. Wotan had previously subverted his own laws in his dealing with the giants, but Fricke insists that her laws be observed to the letter. All too human, she insists on vengeance and, by extension, repays Wotan for his infidelities. Fricke's jealousy extends far beyond domestic marital woes, however. Her call for Siegmund's punishment is both personal and political. Her husband's disloyalty, both to his marriage and his own laws, diminishes her power and status. While Wotan's defense of Siegmund's and Sieglinde's unconditional love is valid and important, Fricke argues as an act of self-preservation. In the context of a clear power disparity, Siegmund's punishment is politically necessary for her. She will have no authority as a goddess if Wotan encourages the open defiance of her laws. Buckling under Fricka's demands, Wotan unwillingly abandons his son to his fate. Her instrument in this punishment is Hunding, the wronged spouse. Barely human, he is brutal, cruel, and cold. Having taken Sieglinde by force to be his wife, he has treated her with contempt and condemned her to a life of servitude. But Frick is not concerned with the content of particular inhuman unions, but in the universal application of her laws. 
Having won her victory, she walks off the stage of the ring, never to be seen again. Her continued existence is implied in Die Götterdämmerung, where she sits with the gods in Valhalla, all bound by astonishment and trepidation, awaiting their certain doom. It is as if Fricka, along with the rest of Wotan's retinue, has already resigned herself, occupying the place assigned to mythical gods in modernity, depicted in art, but never more to be seen, referred to, but never more to be heard. Brunhilde, the favorite daughter of Wotan, will take center stage as the force of this new, free love, never to relinquish it. Freya's gentle beauty recedes. Sieglinde's passionate and winning humanity will end in her young death. Brunhilde will set out on her path from youthful warrior to her eventual role as the embodiment of world-encompassing, redemptive love. By disobeying Wotan's orders, she defines her new adulthood and demonstrates empathic and intuitive love by executing his will in defiance of his words. In a rite of passage, she, in Freudian terms, destroys the fatherly role of Wotan, just as Siegfried will accomplish the ultimate destruction of Wotan's godly status, when he unknowingly meets his grandfather, as Oedipus met King Laius, and breaks his spear. But in Brunhilde's defiance of Wotan's commands, she shows that she understands the spirit of love, perhaps in contrast to Fricka, to be superior to the law, as did, in her fateful way, Sieglinde. As in Greek tragedy, the gods punish any infraction against their authority. Forbidden love must be chastised. King Oedipus pays for his unwilling incestuous love. How much more must Siegmund and Sieglinde, twins, pay for their incestuous love, consummated with full knowledge of their common parentage? Sieglinde and Brunhilde, biologically half-sisters, are perfect spiritual siblings. Each conceived to accomplish their father's will, they choose to live according to their understanding of the demands of love, accepting total responsibility for the price of their autonomy, and each embracing their respective punishments. Is the third part, Siegfried, the metaphorical scherzo of a four-movement symphony? Most analogies of this sort break down, of course, under the microscope, but still there is some justification for the comparison. Though it is by no measure a comedy, Siegfried contains more banter, repartee, and light moments than any other music drama in the ring. Here is an homage to Beethoven, who transformed the minuet into the scherzo, which means joke in Italian. The scenes between Siegfried and Mima are infused with an almost manic energy, reminiscent of the nine symphonies of Wagner's mighty predecessor. Could one say that Siegfried is a heroic scherzo, or conversely, a scherzo about a hero? Moreover, the third part of the ring also draws more heavily from fairy tale tropes than in the other three. The list of elements common to that genre is long. A dark forest, a gnome, a sword with astounding strength, a witch's broth, a dragon slain by a hero, serpent's blood, which empowers the hero to read thoughts and understand a forest bird's twittering, an enchanting and enchanted encounter with nature, a magic fire, and finally, a sleeping beauty to be awakened with a kiss. Siegfried is a peculiar type of hero, if he even be called one at all. True, like Hercules, he performs acts of great bravery and physical strength. 
he, in a way similarly to Parsifal, the pure fool, he is not impressive on an emotional or intellectual level. He defends neither kin nor country, ideology nor an enlightened vision. To what does he dedicate his great strengths? We discover him as an adolescent, predictably self-involved and narcissistic, but in the end, the heroics are revealed in his kinship with his father, the creator, with a small c, Wagner himself. The composer, wielding the mighty sword he has forged for himself out of broken pieces of Western civilization, his view, will revolutionize music and with it, the world. Siegfried knows no fear. In mythology and scriptures, the status of hero is usually conferred on those who experience fear and or doubt as they confront a defining struggle, which they ultimately win. There is no garden on the Mount of Olives for Siegfried. His heroic acts are based on his brawn, not his brains. He forges a sword, kills a dragon, and walks through fire. His less-than-exalted goals are few. The first is to annoy and ultimately murder Mime, the Nibelung dwarf who describes himself as both Siegfried's father and mother. His second is to learn the meaning of fear. Though not ignoble, it is hardly a heroic quest. After being prompted by the woodbird, he decides he can learn fear by walking through a fire to find a beautiful woman. In a Freudian manner, his rite of passage is to wield his sword to kill Mima, his surrogate father, and then to break the spear, the symbol of power and law, of his grandfather, Wotan. Like Oedipus, who unknowingly murders his father, the king, at a crossroads, then unwittingly marries his mother, Jocasta. Siegfried, equally ignorant, symbolically does the same, continues on his journey, and will marry his aunt, Brunhilde. Wagner, as he did in Die Waldkure, has again fused two stories into one work. The saga of Wotan, Erde, and the Curse of the Ring intersect with that of Siegfried, whose trajectory from adolescence to manhood has its own dynamics. As he knows next to nothing about human society, which will become woefully apparent in Die Götterdämmerung, his role in that cosmic drama is accidental and unconscious, almost preordained. The world of Die Waldkure, which was more human than that of Das Rheingold, recounts the struggle of the deities Wotan Fricke and the half-deity Brunhilde, juxtaposed with the human story of a brother and sister united in forbidden love. They perish at the hands of a brutal husband, Hunding, in alliance with a righteously indignant deity wife, Fricke. The issue of that loving, forbidden, incestuous union Young Siegfried's fairy tale like story is grafted onto the remaining threads of the two previous music dramas. It opens a new world to Siegfried and the reborn and fully human Brunhilde, defrocked of her divinity. It portends the closing of the world of Wotan, Erde, and the gods, Fafner, and the race of giants. Only Albericht, the ring and its curse, continue onwards. So, once again, Siegfried is one music drama with two stories. The fairy tale ends with the young couple's exultant discovery of love. They will live happily ever after. Except, of course, they won't. Just as with the glorious celebration of the gods' entrance into Valhalla at the end of Das Rheingold, the apparent triumph at the end of Siegfried is illusory. Siegfried's story goes on, 
the fairy tale aspect recedes. The young couple descend the mountain and Siegfried enters human society. The enlightened Brunhilde will leave her naive Siegfried to his own devices and, before long, he is ensnared both by a fractured human society and the unresolved remnants of Wotan's legacy. In fact, the cosmic myth dominates. Siegfried has been the plaything of the gods after all. Together with Brunhilde, will he show humanity the way out of the age of the gods and into the new age of the heroic? Will intrepid feats of human strength and compassionate love mend the world? Promises of valiant deeds will transform humanity. Will Die Goethe Dämmerung ultimately show this is all to be illusory? Can the heroes atone for the sins of the Father through self-sacrifice and courageous deeds? Can the world be renewed through compassionate love? Not yet. Only after the universe has regained its balance with the restitution of the gold to its rightful place in nature and, by extension, the individual lust for power and drive for world domination is eradicated, Siegfried is by far the most exuberant and optimistic of the ring music dramas. It pulses with pure excitement and moments of distilled youthful vigor. Each act climaxes in exultant primal energy. In Act One, Siegfried's forging of the sword reinvents the wheel, achieving through work, schaffen, an almost orgasmic excitement similar to his parents' erotic union. In Act Two, he dashes off with an unquestioning naivete and cheerfulness to treat every adventure as his toy. In Act Three, he awakens the sleeping beauty and through her discovers fear, woman, and the beginning of adulthood in joyous, triumphant partnership with Brunhilde and the orchestra. Siegfried is the ring's second depiction of Wotan's progeny discovering love. The opera finishes with roaring ecstasy. The newly found couple exclaims, She is, he is, forever and always for me. Inheritance and possession. One and all, shining love, laughing death. Lachender Tod. They are granted the fulfillment and consummation of their new love, which will be denied to Tristan and Isolde. In contrast to Sieglinde and Siegmund, who experience the reunion of a single soul, sharing memories of a distantly arcane bond, this young heroic couple share a mutual sexual awakening. Wotan's grandiose plans, now dead and gone forever, open the path to create the new human reality, not a world of gods, but of humans. Wotan's daughter and grandson mate for the second time in incestuous love. The Welsungen race should continue after all. Fricka is long gone and this time cannot contrive to punish them. The new age has dawned. The sleeping beauty has awoken. Torundot's heart has melted. The heroes will save the earth. We identify with their joy and our own unrealized heroic fantasies. The exultation that we feel with them seems resplendently justified. If we did not know what happens in Die Goethe Dämmerung, we would believe that the ring's curse had been defied, true love had triumphed, and that they, and we, would live happily ever after. Away then with lordly splendor, godly pomp's arrogant shame. Let all that I have built disintegrate. I renounce my work. Only one thing do I desire still. The end. The end. Wotan, with a bitter mixture of resignation, desire, and dread, 
utters these terrifying words to his daughter Brunhilde in the second act of Die Walküre, and thus it is for all of us, or so it seems. The end of time and of the world as we know it continues to preoccupy human beings as it probably has from the dawn of consciousness. Apocalyptic visions, beliefs and fantasies are a staple throughout human history. Artists, musicians, writers have grappled with and drawn inspiration from eschatological mythologies. Both as music and theatre, Die Götterdämmerung stands as the most massive achievement in apocalyptic art. The powerful voice of the orchestra as protagonist, including extended symphonic passages, is liberated beyond any previous operatic example in the employment of absolute music. It unleashes drama in a torrent of expression, revealing the inarticulate, subliminal unconscious of the cosmic forces. The jubilation at the end of Siegfried has heralded a new age and a new heroic couple, they will descend from the mountain, like Moses, Jesus, and Mohammed, prepared to reveal a new moral order. The distant, otherworldly mountain repeatedly served Wagner. The eroticism of Venusberg in Tannhäuser, the spirituality of Mont Salvat, home of the Holy Grail in Parsifal, Valhalla, temple of illusory transient power in Das Rheingold, Brynhilde's rock, scene of the confinement and rebirth, of a new prophetess in Siegfried. A mountainous sojourn signifies a source of transformative revelation, the apocalypse of the Greeks. But Siegfried is not a prophet and not really even a hero. No time will be lost before he falls into the trap of human intrigue. Brynhilde, however, in the end, through her innate understanding of enlightened sympathy and compassion, will heroically serve as catalyst to this cosmic drama's denouement. Kurz vor Mitternacht, shortly before midnight, could be the subtitle of this final chapter of the four-work music drama. The sense that the end of time is at hand imbues the work from its ominous first chords. A magnetic pull draws the listener towards that end, inspiring dread and desire in equal measure. Terror of the unknown and desire for the relief from the feeling of trepidation. The cosmic myth of Vota, the gods and Valhalla collide with the heroic drama of Siegfried's death. 
Wagner's original title for this work, and together they and their worlds are destroyed. But is the end of time also the beginning of time? There is already a hint of ambiguity in the title. In German, Dämmerung, which means dim light, refers both to dawn and dusk. The traditional English translation, Twilight of the Gods, is clearly the meaning Wagner employs. Apocalypse, in its etymological sense of revelation or disclosure, implies continuation of the cosmos after its true nature has been uncovered. The dim light of dusk should first reemerge in the dim light of dawn after the darkness of night. The old world order, that of the gods, is finished. Is this the end of the world, or will it now be replaced by a new, better order? Or neither? Has the harmony of the universe been restored with the return of the gold to the Rhine? If so, has its restoration brought history to a close, a point of stasis, or another beginning? Is cosmic history linear or cyclical? Has Brunhilde's transformation, from daughter of the gods to fully human, ushered in a new era? Will the new world order of evolved humanity build society without gods, or even heroes? Based on compassion, justice, and freedom, will Brunhilde's example serve as a model? Or will new gods arise and break their own contracts and laws? Will Alberich steal the gold again and challenge the new gods in their mutual lust for power? Will mankind have learned from a purifying baptism of fire and water, or repeat this drama cyclically? At the end, presumably all of the protagonists have died, either burnt by fire or submerged by water. Only the Rhine Maidens survive, probably to return to their preordained function of guarding the Rheingold. Is it significant that, besides them, only Alberich remains, for whom there is no accounting? Are he and the Rhine Maidens destined for another confrontation? Will the biblical fall of man repeat itself? There are no answers, only questions. The sense of dread of the impending end of time gives way to cathartic completion. The world has been purged, literally ignited by Brunhilde and bathed in the overflowing waters of the Rhine. And she, evolved and revolutionary, possibly embodying Wagner's own philosophical trajectory, brings the end upon herself and the order into which she was born and the world in which she has grown to maturity. She has a power through redemptive love to transform the world it is a power never attained by Alberich, who renounced love, a power lost by Wotan, who contradicted his own laws. The immolation scene recalls Isolde's Liebestod, love death. The music transcends the word. Brunhilde's death, a journey into an envisioned eternity of her own creation, a place where she can love without interruption, a luxury denied her both in Valhalla and on earth, is simultaneously the annihilation of the world order. There seems to be a universality to end-of-time scenarios that run throughout most cultures. Apocalyptic dread merges the individual and the cosmic. And so it is with Brunhilde's death and the end of the world order. Are we destined for new life, cyclical repetition, or extinction? Wagner believes that redemptive love is the powerful force that converts and emancipates humanity. Brunhilde, nurtured by filial devotion and autonomous mature love, 
embodies that power. She is the agent of the restoration of nature's harmony, which regains its balance with the restitution of the gold. Alberich's renunciation of love is itself renounced, and the lust for power is vanquished by the mandates of compassionate love. This poetic four-movement symphonic music drama, this colossus of Western civilization, ends not with the false idolatry of Wotan's godly pomp, but with Wagner's vision of spiritual transformation, an epic myth conceived in a spirit of revolutionary activism has, in the course of time, transformed itself. Through Wagner's years of reflection, resignation, and philosophical metamorphosis, that myth culminates in a message of cosmic redemption. This podcast was co-produced by Rebecca Stewart. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera.